Good morning, everybody. Welcome to St. Paul's Lutheran Church. It's that time, 9.30, for our Bible study. So glad to have you here. Good to see you guys. My name is Lawton Thompson. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'll be leading our study this morning as we dive a little bit further into the Gospel of John. We'll be starting at verse 24 this morning, I believe. That's where we left off last week. But let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer before we start. Lord God, Heavenly Father, you've gathered us into this place today. Uh, You've gathered us so that you can feed us in word and sacrament, Lord, and we thank you for that. We ask for your blessing on our time together and that you would guide our discussion uh, as we move further into the Gospel of John. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, you guys, it's good to see you. It's good to be with you here. I'm so glad that it's like almost 20 degrees warmer today than it was last Sunday. I never thought I would think that 10 degrees was warm, um, but it felt kind of nice outside this morning, or maybe I'm crazy. I don't know. Anyways, so you guys covered last week uh, some, a part of John chapter 1, and we're going to pick up right here at verse 24, make our way through, and I look forward to any of the questions, comments that you guys have as we make our way through. Uh, we're going to have a handheld mic, so if, if you have a question, we want you to speak into it so that our brothers and sisters out there uh, on KFUO can hear what you're going to say. Starting at verse 24, now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now, Now, this little segment right here, verses 24 to 28, this is a continuation of a conversation that the Pharisees are having. Um, These priests and Levites come from Jerusalem. John's doing some things that catch the attention uh, of, of this whole crowd of people. He's doing some things differently. And so they want to know who he is. They, they, are, they are interested in this because the Jews are still looking for a Messiah. They're looking for, for this, this Savior to come, and especially in a time where the uh, not particularly kind Romans are their overlords, uh, they're, they're looking for this. And so he's already said, I am not the Christ. He's like, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the guy you're looking for. And you can almost see them like stand back, scratch their heads and go, okay, well then who are you? Uh, and so they need to bring this answer back to the people that have sent them. Uh, and we hear this, this word Elijah and we go, well, that's odd. Why would, you know, Elijah's been gone for an awful long time. Uh, But the Jews were expecting Elijah. Even if you go to a Passover Seder meal today, as they're moving through that Haggadah, that storytelling, you'll find a place at the table for Elijah. A place setting, there's a cup there, a glass of wine for Elijah. Uh, And this this connects us back to some Old Testament prophecies here um, about Elijah. So they're expecting this. And John... John is kind of similar to Elijah. If you think back to to 2 Kings, to the description of John, he wears garments of Elijah, he wears garments of hair, 
right? He's out in the wilderness. He's, he, he, there's, some, there's some similarities. Uh, and we haven't gotten to this part of John's ministry yet, but like when John is beheaded, he's got a powerful woman after him. Elijah also did. Remember, Jezebel wanted Elijah dead. And so there's, there's some interesting parallels in these two. So they would have a reason to go, all right, are you Elijah then? Um, and so they ask this question. And he says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. And he talks about this, I'm not even worthy to untie the straps of his sandals. And in this time period, the, the disciples of a rabbi, those that follow the teachings of a rabbi, were essentially were there to serve him and learn from that rabbi. But untying the, the sandals, taking those sandals off the feet wasn't the disciples' job. And I mean disciples, not just Jesus' disciples. I mean disciples of any rabbi. That's a follower of a teacher. That was, that was reserved for the lowliest servant slave in the house. Um, and so this is pretty significant when John says, I'm following him, but I'm not even, I'm not even worthy. I'm, not, I'm below that lowest servant in the household. I shouldn't even be taking off his sandals. But we don't want to fast forward too fast past the statement, but among you stands one you do not know. Because if I'm, if I'm one of these, these priests, these Levites, these Pharisees that's looking for the Messiah, and suddenly this guy that says, you know what, I'm, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, I'm making straight the way, I'm preparing the way of the Lord, and by the way, he's here, you just don't know him yet. Suddenly, my spidey senses go up and I'm like, oh, wait, you mean the Messiah is here? You're not him, but he's here somewhere. Where is he? Uh, and I, like, that's one of those things for me, as I read any text from the Bible, as it records these events, I love to like, I, I, I just contemplate, what's the reaction? Like, I wish I could have seen the look on their faces when they heard that and they're like, wait, he's here? Who is he? I mean, it's, it's this, uh, you can almost, they've been looking for this, you know, for, for hundreds of years. They have been, I mean, more than just hundreds of years. They've been exiled, they've been brought back, and different kingdoms have been over top of them. And they're going, how long, O oh Lord? How long? I mean, they are, they are ready. Um, and so many have come claiming to be the Messiah only to not be the Messiah because they weren't Jesus. And so they're looking, they're looking. It gives us this geographic tag about where he's at. And so they just want to know. And he's giving them kind of an unsatisfying answer. It's not me. I'm not the guy, but he's here. Right? But they don't have to wait long because it's the very next day. Uh, Hey, Ben, do you have a handheld mic for me? I'm running around. Wave at the camera as I get close. All right, thank you, sir. This never hit me before, but it's kind of interesting what you just said, that when John the Baptist came, they were almost on the edge of their chairs kind of thing, and like, who are you? And he says, no, 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 wait a minute, wait, I'm not the one. And then very shortly after that, the one that he tells them about shows up and right. won't have anything to do with them. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, because Jesus is not the one that they're looking for. We're gonna, when, when we hear Nathaniel's reaction to Philip, we're going we're gonna to learn a little bit about why, that, why some of that is. But Jesus is not what they were expecting. They were expecting something completely different than that. And, but they were living in anticipation. And I think that we could take something from that today. Uh, as we stand here between the resurrection, well, Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection, his return in glory, like we, we should live on the edge of our chairs with this excited anticipation of his return, looking forward to what comes next. Because that's, that's the hope that we have in Christ, is that he is coming back in glory and all all the dead in Christ will rise first and will be in new bodies and in this new heaven and this new earth and, and all this stuff that's here will pass away. And so even though they miss the boat, even though they're going, that's not the guy we were expecting, that anticipation that they're living with, looking for a Messiah, is something we could learn from a little bit as we live our lives, as we're going, how long, O oh Lord? Are you, you ready to come back yet? Um, and so that's something I never miss a chance to talk about Jesus coming back in glory because I'm really looking forward to that day. Uh, and so let's keep our eye on that. But yeah, the next day, the very next day, they see him and John says something. This is verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, look the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So there's been different lambs across the history of Scripture, right? We, if we go all the way back to Genesis 22, right, we've got Abraham sacrificing Isaac, or almost, right, the Lord, there's a ram in the, in the thicket, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. You fast forward to the Exodus, there's the Passover lamb, each family finding that lamb without blemish, sacrificing it, painting the doorpost and the lintel with the blood so that the destroyer, the angel of death, would pass over. That's only for one event. And they observed that time and time again, calling back to that event. And here, John makes a definite statement. It's not a lamb of God. It's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is that perfect Passover lamb, the one whose blood atones for the sin of all people for all time. Every year on the Day of Atonement, when God's people would come on pilgrimage to Jerusalem and they would offer those sacrifices and the high priest would go in to the altar and splash that blood on the altar. That sacrifice was, was for the sins of the people for that year. They had to do it again and again. This, the Passover lamb, the lamb of God, his blood covered all of the sins of all of creation for all time. No more sacrifice was needed. And that's a really beautiful thing. And, it's, and John's saying this very excited. I mean, like he almost, and you're going to see this, he's going to see him again the next day after this and say, behold the Lamb of God. It's like he can't contain himself when he sees Jesus, his cousin, 
Behold the Lamb of God. And he continues on. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Wow, that is quite a statement. We don't get the full picture of Jesus' baptism in the Gospel of John. Uh, As you guys may be familiar, the Gospel of John, we, we believe, was written much, much later. And so as John is writing it, he recognizes that those other Gospel accounts are circulating and so that people are familiar with with this, the events surrounding this. And so he just talks about that aspect of the dove, right? The Spirit of God, Holy Spirit descending like a dove from heaven, remaining on him. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. And John, in all of this, he's gained a following. He's out here in the wilderness. There's people that are coming to him because he kind of resembles Elijah and they're looking and saying, what is his deal? People are following him. He doesn't take any of that to to build his ministry up. Every time he defers and he turns that away and says, it's not me, it's him. It's not me. There's the Lamb of God. There's the Lamb of God. This is the one, you guys. It's not me. I'm just preparing the way. Um, it's, It's kind of a beautiful picture of humility, that he's not in his words here, and what we read about John, we don't find someone that's like, I need the attention, I need to be the center of the show. It's one that says, no, I'm, I'm, I'm really here to point to the Messiah. He's the one. He's the one. It's really, it's kind of a beautiful picture. And then we get this statement here at the bottom. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Interesting. But with the coming of Jesus, as, as Jesus comes into the world, as his ministry is, as he fulfills the requirements of the law, we know that God the Holy Spirit will be given to all people. We get at Pentecost the tongues of fire and they're able to speak in different languages that they haven't learned. And then he sends out his disciples before that, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we know that in that baptism, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us. That Holy Spirit works faith in our hearts, and so he brings that Holy Spirit. This is, this is the inbreaking, as Dr. Gibbs at the seminary would say, the inbreaking of the reign of God into the world. And so now we live in this now, not yet, where, where the reign of God is, is here, but we can't fully see it yet. We're waiting for his return in glory so that it will all be revealed. And, and so this right here, now God the Holy Spirit uh, is given to all believers. I want to pause there for a moment before I rush too far forward. I'm saying a lot of words. Any comments or questions? Insightful things you want to say? Yeah, on my way.
This has been a little bit of a struggle in living way because we're still in the Old Testament dealing with the great figures um, yeah. of faith in the Old Testament. So the question always seems to come up, wasn't the Holy Spirit actually there in, in the Old Testament as well? But when you say it's the indwelling, it's mm -hmm. the coming down of the kingdom of God in a new way. Yes. Um, I don't, may, maybe we'll go into that more as time goes on. I don't know. But I think that's a crucial point, right. understanding where we are as compared to where yeah. they were. Absolutely. And we do see, I mean, we do see the Spirit of God in the Old Testament. All the way from the very beginning, the Spirit of God is hovering over the water. But this is, you know, Jesus comes as a mediator of a new covenant. And he's bringing, he's bringing this reign of God in a new and different way into the world. As, as God has worked through all of history to get to him to fulfill to fulfill what needed to be fulfilled. And so, so now it's new and different. It's, it's something, something that's it's pretty exciting to me um, that, that we have the Holy Spirit living in us, that it's not, that it's not in these you know, pilgrimages to Jerusalem, although I'd love to get there sometime, where I need to come and offer sacrifices and that priest needs to go and intercede for me. Instead, now we have Jesus, our great high priest, who intercedes for us. And it's not geographically located. I'll come back right over there in just a second. So the, as you go through the first part of John, he really is introducing the triune God. Uh, and yes. it's really oh, yeah. <clears throat> Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But he never calls Jesus Yahweh. Is that correct? I don't believe like, he ever does. He, he really likes this term, Lamb of God. Um, that's, that's, that's a big one uh, for, for John, is Lamb of God. It's still been a little disturbing um, when, we, when we're in the Old Testament, because you feel sometimes like people are helpless. We're told that some people were filled with the Spirit. Yes. But, I mean, God's grace was there, but were mm -hmm. people... I mean, believers, people that had faith in God, where they left, they don't have the strength we do. So right. how do we explain that? So that's a great question. God was working in, as God worked through all history, he didn't leave those people behind. So I think the question you have is that because the indwelling, we, we have this different indwelling now, did that mean that they were kind of outside the pale, so to speak? It, yeah. It, that's not the case. God, th that was God's chosen people. There was a covenant that they were living under um, that was the old covenant, right? Um, and we could even go so far as we divide our Bible into two halves, instead of saying the Old Testament and the New Testament, you could say the Old Covenant and the New Covenant in a way, right? Or the first and the second. And so they're living under that, and there's a different there's a different set of guidelines, right? You, you need to do these things um, because Jesus hasn't gotten there yet and because through those things, God is working to bring about Jesus. And so it looks differently, but God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are at work in and through the people there. Um, something, I, you know, we, we always, we talk about God the Father and we talk sometimes about Jesus, and I think this is something that's important to highlight and you brought up, uh, because we talk about the, the Moloch Yahweh, the messenger of the Lord, and we say that's, that's an that's a experience of the pre-incarnate Christ. 
Um, and we even sometimes go so far, and this would be uh, with last week's Old Testament reading in 1 Samuel 3, the Devar Yahweh, the word of the Lord. Uh, in some of those instances, like when he comes to Samuel, it's not just this maybe amorphous word. We don't know exactly what that looks like, but it says, the word of the Lord, he came and stood next to Samuel as he calls him that fourth time. Uh, And so we talk about that, but then how does the Spirit of God play into that? We see the Spirit of God at creation. We see people filled with the Spirit throughout there. So the Spirit of God is working, um, but maybe not as visible in our normal conversations, but it doesn't mean he's absent in those things. He's He's very present with his people. There we go. Was the second person of the Trinity the Lamb of God from eternity or at his, uh, from his incarnation forward? Oh, man. Was he the Lamb of God from all eternity? So he's foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Right. So Isn't I another, would... Maybe another way to ask uh, in a different way is, was the second person of the Trinity true man from eternity or only at his incarnation? Ooh, that's okay. So, so that one I think is a little, a little easier to answer maybe. So he is true God from eternity, but he takes on flesh in that moment of the incarnation. And so until then, as he appears in these different ways, I can't define to you what that looks like. But we know that at that moment um, of his conception, by the Holy Spirit through the Virgin Mary, right? Or by the Virgin Mary through the Holy Spirit, that he becomes flesh. Uh, and, and at that point on, true God, true man, and we can go into the, the language of, of, of our, our doctrine, right? The, they are distinct but not confused but inseparable. Like, try to draw a picture of that. But yes, from, he's foreshadowed in the Old Testament. We look uh, and, and especially in the Passover lamb, that's probably the best picture that we get um, of, of what Jesus is going to be. But his incarnation is where he finally takes on flesh and becomes, becomes that. Good question. Yeah. I'm going to turn indoor walk-in on my uh, Apple Watch so I can get a good workout here. So what about the Garden of Eden? He walked with Adam, and he mm-hmm. walked with Adam then. So physical, spiritual? Ah, that's a great question. So, so, yeah, he walks with them. But what does that look like? And that's not, that's still what we would call, when we, when we look at all of these things in the Old Testament, like especially when we talk about the second person, we talk about the pre-incarnate Christ. So not having that human form. And so when God walks with Adam and Eve, that's a very real, he's there with them. What does that exactly look like? Great question. <laughs> um, because then the next thing that we go from there is we say, okay, so what is the image of God? And that one's another really hard one because it's only mentioned a couple of times throughout Scripture and it's never really defined what, you know, we're created in the image of God. What does that mean? Excellent question. And that's one of my Jesus pocket questions. You know, there's something, I think I've said this to you guys before, there's something that can be so refreshing about being able to say, we just can't know the answer to that, so I wish I could tell you, and at the same time, frustrating because I just can't tell you the answer to that, but I really wish I could. 
Uh, but yeah, we, but we, we know that he was there. Like, I, I picture that as a beautiful thing uh, that I really look forward to in the new creation where God is just walking with his people and talking to them. And he, he walks and talks with us today, but in a very different way than in that pre-fall garden of Eden. And so we look forward to that new world where the presence of God uh, is, we can be in that presence of God without being destroyed or glowing as Moses did. That's a great story in Exodus. Exodus. Yes. All right. All right. On my way. I'm just following up on Mark's question. Is yeah. there is there a prophecy that mentions a lamb? That there would come a lamb, uh, the lamb. So there's there's places uh, in the old. I'm trying to think, and I can't think of any. But so there there is there are places in the Old Testament that talk about the lamb, and I'm trying to think. Ooh, you got me there. I'm trying to think of a specific place where it says that. Because they talk about the Passover lamb a lot, pointing towards. But I'm not sure. Isaiah. Uh, brought like a lamb to the slaughter. Brought by a lamb to the, like a lamb to the slaughter in Isaiah. So that's probably somewhere in the middle of Isaiah. Isn't it 50, 53, maybe? I'm probably quoting that wrong. Yeah. Yes. I think I actually put that in one of my notes now that I'm thinking about it. It is a mention of it, yeah. And... And so we see this lamb imagery throughout the Old Testament. Um, but I'm not sure. I'm, I'm trying, what I'm trying to think is if there's a place where it says, like, points to him as the Passover lamb, and I cannot remember. Right. Okay. All right. Anything else? So we're going to get into last week's epistle reading, or I mean last week's gospel reading next. This is... Uh, this uh, up here as we get towards Jesus calling Philip and Nathaniel. So the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. Here he is again. I'm excited. I can't help it. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Kind of an interesting response. Where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Uh, so this, we, we see this calling of these first disciples right here in John. And, and a couple of, just a couple of notes. One of them is kind of fun. I love how, and we're going to see this a few times here as he calls the disciples. They're all like, we found him. We found him. Actually, Jesus found them. He comes to them, finds them, and calls them. Uh, and so you see this kind of, you're going to see this repeated a few times here. I uh, brought him to Jesus, Simon, son of John, you shall be called Cephas. And we know that Peter is Petros, and Petra is rock. And so there's, 
There's going to be uh, this, this rock imagery attached, but it's not like we always think of the rock. Some commentators uh, put a little humorous spin on, for, spin on this for me this week, like, you know, like sink like a rock, still like a rock, things like that, not like rock upon which this foundation of Peter um, because we all know that the impetuous Peter throughout the ministry of Jesus, is, if you look at him, he speaks first and thinks later. He acts first and thinks later. Uh, and um, there's a beautiful enthusiasm in that, but there's also like a frustrating thing, like the time where Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> right after, like the day after, he clearly confesses, you are the son of God. And not 24 hours later, Peter's like, no, that's not how this is supposed to go. And Jesus is like, come on. We just talked about this. We just talked about this, Peter. Uh, so he's calling the disciples. His, his public ministry is beginning. This is in this first Uh, journey to Jerusalem in the Gospel of John, and so he's making his way in that direction. So he calls those first disciples, and the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. This is verse 43. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, again, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Um, this, this should catch our eye because thus far people have just been, oh, cool, this is the Messiah, let's follow him. And Nathanael stops and says, can anything good come from Nazareth? Well, I mean, there's, there's, some, there's some things to draw on here. There's no prophecies in the Old Testament about Nazareth. It's not, there, you know, it's not that the Messiah will be born in Nazareth. So when he hears Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, he's like, well, Joseph's, if he knows him, Joseph's a carpenter, a construction worker, some kind of builder. And Nazareth is kind of a podunk town. It's, it's a little backwater up there, and it's also a hotbed of Gentilism at this time. And so, like, when an Israelite hears that, when a Jewish person hears that, they're going, huh, so you're telling me you found the Messiah and he's from Nazareth? I don't remember that. My rabbi never said that to me. Uh, and so there's, there's kind of this open honesty that we get with Nathaniel as he's like, I hear what you're saying, Philip, but... Uh, that doesn't match up with what I remember. And so this doesn't phase Philip. He says, come and see this invitation. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. I mean, Jesus is, is not looking at Nathanael necessarily and saying, this is like the holiest of Israelites. This is the, this is the guy but what he's saying is that he's honest. That he, I mean, we see he speaks openly about what's on his mind. He might be wrong about it, but you're not going to have to worry about what he's thinking. He's, he's straightforward. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So this one right here, what does that mean? I don't know about you, but when I would hear this, this event read as a child, 
I, I went kind of the empirical route and said, well, that's kind of strange because I can observe anyone sitting under a tree. So what is it about this statement of him sitting under a fig tree that's different? Because clearly with, with Nathaniel's response, there's something different about this. There's something more to this than just him sitting under a fig tree. Because I think about that, I'm like, he didn't know Jesus the day before. The, the, Jesus could have been walking by and saw him sitting under the fig tree and like just simply observed it. Uh, and so this one right here, we can, we can draw a couple things from this as potentials for what fig tree might mean. So in Judaism, the fig tree or the fig was symbolic of fruit in the garden. Uh, in, in our Western culture, it's always an apple, Always an apple, but that's nowhere in the Bible. And, and we don't know what the fruit was specifically, but we do know that when Adam and Eve fell into sin, what did they make their clothing with initially? They sewed together fig leaves. So in Judaism, the fig is associated with this thing that Adam and Eve had contaminated themselves, had covered themselves with in the garden, right? And so he could be it could be that he is alluding to something that Nathaniel maybe was doing that he shouldn't have been doing or something like that because Nathaniel's response, uh, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you're the king of Israel. The other thing, the other thing is as we look across the Old Testament, uh, Micah 4 and Zechariah 3 are two examples of this. Uh, the fig tree, sitting under the fig tree, is associated with peace and security of this messianic kingdom to come. And so there's a couple different things there. We can't say, I can't conclusively look at you and say, Jesus was saying, I saw what you did under the fig tree. But we also can't say, he was saying the messianic kingdom is here. Now, he is saying that, but we don't know specifically what that fig tree reference is. But clearly, it's, it's more than him just sitting under a fig tree. There's something else there that Nathaniel is connecting, that, that God is revealing to him in that statement. Um, which, to me, even though that's a little confusing, that I can't really fully explain what that was. It's better than when I was a kid and going, so he saw him under a fig tree. Fig trees were there. They grew there. There was something more to that statement that Jesus knew Nathaniel, that he knew who he was and what he was there uh, to do for him. And Nathaniel recognized that. Yeah. In a footnote in my Bible, it says, uh, for verse 48, uh, fig tree, its shade was a favorite place for study and prayer in hot weather. Yeah, and that's good. I, I can't think of a better place, sit under a fruit tree and study. You got snacks and a place of shade. All right, here you go. I understood you to say that he... Didn't, th didn't think that Jesus would come from Nazareth because there was no prophecy? Yeah, there was, I don't remember there being an Old well, Testament prophecy yeah, about there, that. But, it, but if you go to Matthew, yeah. uh, when, they went, when they settled in Nazareth, it says, he shall be, uh, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. A Nazarene. I'm not sure where that is. That might be in reference to a Naz like the, the person of a Nazarene. I, I don't know where the Gotcha. I'll have to look that up. Does anybody know? Is that referring to him being in, like the Nazarite vow? 
Because I can't answer that for you. Okay. In Matthew, it's in relation to being from Nazareth, but sorry. In Matthew, it's in relation to being from Nazareth, but there's nowhere in the Old Testament that says that. So it's a different prophecy than something we see in the Old Testament. Okay. So, so what uh, what Jessica just said is, what's that? (laughs) That's what the Google said. We have to be careful with that, Um, because I. So it's in Matthew. What's that? Right, that's what, that's what we're looking at. Yeah, that's what, but what you said is it's not according to the search you just did, not in our scriptures. Gotcha. And that's, and that's what, I, when I looked, I didn't see anything about Nazareth specifically in the 39 books of the Old Testament. But it could be, it, it could be in, I'm not going to, I'm not going to speculate. I can't answer the question. I'm just going to stop right there. But I'll look that up. Ask me on Wednesday. And if you're out there, look it up. (laughs) All right. Good question, though. So, under the fig tree, he's sitting there. uh, And Nathanael confesses, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I think that's a really cool statement. Uh, last week in the sermon, we, we, I talked about how Jesus says this to him. Now this calls back to that Old Testament where, where we've got the presence of God with his people. There it's called Jacob's Ladder. The angels are ascending and descending on this ladder. This is, what, this is what he sees, Jacob. Here, the angels are ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Because Jesus is the Messiah. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the ladder. He is that connection between heaven and earth. And as we look forward into like the book of Hebrews and we talk about Jesus, the great high priest, and as we read scriptures about him being our intercessor, him interceding for us, this is a beautiful picture of who Jesus is uh, in his ministry. And this, again, Nathaniel, Philip, these guys would have heard these things read in the scrolls by their rabbis. And so as they hear this, and this, this son of man language is also very messianic, as they hear ascending and descending on the Son of Man, that would have made them go, huh, I know how Jacob's ladder goes. And they wouldn't have said Jacob's ladder, we would say that. But this is different. This is very, very different from that. Uh, and this is, again, tying back to what the, the religious group of the day, the, the Levites, the priests, the Pharisees are looking for, This is important because this is a change. This is a shift in what their thought is um, for what the Messiah is going to be and going to do. Now, you know, we don't know. It doesn't tell us whether or not there's any of them still following Jesus to find anything else out. Um, But this is different. This This is new and exciting. Any comments, questions? Gotcha. In verse 45, it 
talks about, it mentions Philip saying he's the son of Joseph. And, you know, we don't get very many references to Joseph yeah. in, uh, during the life of the adult life of Jesus. Right. We get the genealogies in the, in the Matthew and Luke, but um, this is a little different. I mean, this is Philip talking about Joseph, and I'm just right. wondering if there's any insight on that. I think, I think the insight is that, that there's at least a familiarity there with who this is. Um, who knows what level of familiarity, um, but that speaks to familiarity because Jesus, the name Jesus, Yeshua, was not an uncommon first century Jewish name at all. I mean, it's kind of like, I mean, John or William or something like that. It is special in the case of Jesus, but he wouldn't have been the only one. So when he says, if he just said, oh, there's this guy, Jesus, that is... Like that could be in reference to a variety of people, but I think it, it points to a familiarity with who he is and also to the reader. Um, it connects us back to those other gospel narratives as we go, okay, he's the son of Joseph of Nazareth, right? And so we connect all those things together. But there's a familiarity there that I see as I read that in who, who he is. Also, we can also... In the Gospel of John, and this is like the Gospel of John, so like all of it, there's this slow reveal that we see. And so Jesus tells people he is. He, he kind of gives them peaks, but there's not this level of understanding. Uh, and so when we say son of Joseph, in a real way, he grew up in Joseph's house. He was there. That's where he was raised. But he's the son of God. Uh, and so there's in that familiarity with who this person is, there's also this sense we get that they don't actually fully know who he is. The disciples at this point, they, they see things like in just a minute, we're going to, just a minute, we'll see at the wedding at Cana, they see that first miracle. And it, and it says they believed. He said who he is, he's shown them a miracle and they believe, but they still don't fully they don't fully grasp what all this means. And so I think there's a little bit of that in that Joseph piece too. In the last verse of this section where, he, where Jesus says, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Yeah. To what is that reference? Now I'm thinking about Jacob's dream. Right. Which was uh, the ladder mm -hmm. and... And somewhere we're told that the ladder was Christ and uh, the angels were ascending and descending. But this talks about a future, a right. future occasion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you will see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This, yeah, this is clearly a connection to that dream and clearly a connection to him being that, clearly a connection to him being the connection, him being that ladder, that bridge between heaven and earth. Um, the intercessor. And I think when we look at that, you will see at this point, Nathaniel's got no idea. He's, he's hearing these things, he's seeing Jesus say things, but the, 
the full who of Jesus is has not been revealed. And we actually see in the Gospel of John, and this is a sneak peek to the end, it's not actually until after the resurrection that the disciples finally have that aha moment and go, oh, because it's only in God's time that he reveals that. And so he's pointing to something in the future, but he's, I mean, there's a clear connection there that he is the one. He is that bridge. He is the, the connection, that intercessor uh, between heaven and earth. It's not a ladder. It's not a piece of furniture. It's him. Any other questions, comments, insights? No. All right. We ready for John 2? Okay, we, we'll start in. We'll get through at least 11 verses. At least 11. Okay. So on the third day, so this is kind of the end of a, a Dr. Shuckard at the seminary would say a conspicuously constructed week at the beginning of John's gospel. So this is at the end of the week. They're at a, they're at a wedding. There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, we have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So weddings, you might be familiar with, weddings in Israel were a pretty big deal. The party was not, it was not just, I'm going to get married at 3.30, we're going to have a cake and punch reception in the church hall, or we're going to have a dinner over at the country club. It was, you know, pack your bags, come on, we've got a, we've got a week-long party for you. So it went. I mean, it was a big, big deal. And so they've got this wedding going on. Clearly Jesus, his family knows whoever this is that's getting married. They've been invited. Uh, and Mary, being observant, notices, uh-oh, the wine's gone. That's a really big deal. If you're, if you're the bridegroom, if this is your job, and you run out of wine, like, that's like the faux pas of faux pas in wedding. It's the big, big problem. She notices that she wants to spare him the shame, and so she's like, wait, I know who Jesus is. I'm going to tell him to do something. And so his response, this is fascinating to me, because in our culture, if I responded to my mother by saying, <laughs> my wife is laughing because she knows. If I said, woman, what does this have to do with me? <laughs> It'd be a rough day at the office. <laughs> And so we hear it that way. So in our, in our 21st century American eyes, we're like, oh man, this is not going to be good. But that was actually not an uncommon way. It was not a disrespectful or uncommon way culturally for that interaction to take place. It's a bit odd that Jesus would say that to his mom. And, but, but that wasn't, it, wasn't, it wouldn't have been heard in the same way we hear it today in America. Uh, you know, as you, as you say that and you like duck and cover. I'm like, oh, should have said that. So, he, so, so don't hear it that way. Just hear this in a whole different cultural context. That would have not been weird. It wouldn't have been out of the ordinary. And then he says this, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And so well, that's an interesting statement. Jesus is on his, he's got this timeline down. He's God after all. And so 
he's essentially saying the hour for the Messiah to be revealed has not yet come. Like, this is not the time and the place for my full glory to be revealed. Uh, and so that's kind of what that has to do with. And so I also find this, I always have found this humorous. It's like Mary looks at him and he says those things and she's like, okay, cool. Do whatever he tells you. <laughs> and I have always taken this to be kind of a fourth commandment thing, right? We're told to honor our father and mother. And Mary's like, I hear what you're saying. This still needs to be done, <laughs> which has baffled me. But, but I think there is a, there is a, a submission to his mother saying, mom, mom wants this thing done. I'm going to get this thing done. Not that she's manipulating Jesus, but this is a motherly directive, on the other hand, don't you think they soften up the Greek here a little bit? I mean, it's, it's not very, they fill it in and they yeah. put woman first. Woman comes at the end. Yeah. Uh, I think I'm, I'm, I'm sort of of the school that says Jesus is kind of telling her that you are not to interfere with my mission. Yeah. And I think there's a part of that too. I think for sure. And I did not go back to the Greek on this this week full transparency. So I can't speak to that. But I think there is, I mean, there is an element of this where Jesus is, is saying, like, there is an appointed time for all these things, and, and you don't get to direct that. At the same time, he listens to mom, right? It's kind of an interesting interaction. Well, this is the first miracle that we hear about. Right. How many times over the previous 30 years do you think uh, maybe she might have called upon him to... So, so that's, that's actually... <laughs> That's a great question. You know, we do have some, in the, in the books of the Apocrypha, we have some reports of, of miracles that Jesus did. They're not, we don't hold them to be inspired word of God, but I mean, he is God and he was around. It is entirely possible, but we have no idea. So, but that's, I mean, it's a fun thing to think about um, happening there. So, we step forward here. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. This also, like, they're, they're servants, so they listen to be what's being told. Uh, but they're, they're in the dark about this, and they're just like, okay. She said, listen, he said, do this, okay. And so there's kind of this like blind trust that something is going to happen. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So a couple of things here. One, I think that's beautiful. This whole feast is going on. The only people that know what has just transpired are these servants, Jesus' mom, and the disciples. Uh, which I think is, is kind of fascinating. He, he comes and he, th this first revelation is, to, is a very small group and it's not the leadership. It's not the ruling class. It's, like, it's the people that are there serving. 
and, and they recognize, they know where it com- came from. And this is another one of those ones where I read this and I try to picture the reaction because these servants are bringing these huge jugs and they're like, all right, wait a minute. I know that I was, I, like, I know I just filled this with water, but there's some, like, really good wine in here now. And you see the master as he responds to these servants, you can almost see looking at each other going, like, what just happened? What on earth did we just witness? Who is this guy? Um, and the disciples, too, because at this point, the disciples have heard the call of Jesus. They've, they've heard him speak to them. And they've, they've followed. They've left their lives behind to follow him. And they're hearing his teaching. I mean, presumably, he's been talking to them. It's not just been a silent walk between towns, right? And so they've been hearing things. And now they see this, and they go, oh, whoa. There's something to the things that he has been saying to us. Uh, And so the water turns to wine, the feast uh, continues, and it says, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Um, Again, this is is a beautiful picture uh, of of Christ at work, Um, and also at work with something that's an ordinary element, just water, right? He works with water to make wine, Um, something that we're also very familiar with what he uses water for when combined with his word today in our midst. And actually, in just a little bit of a late service, there'll be a baptism right across the parking lot in the sanctuary. And we'll see that water, that ordinary water combined with the word of God that makes a new child of God, someone baptized into Christ. All right, guys, any comments, questions on this? Wedding, thoughts for wedding planning? Don't run short on wine. Anything else? No? Okay, guys, I know it's 1025 right now. It's five minutes early, but we're going to go ahead and close up instead of jumping into that next section right there. It's good to see you guys this morning on this much warmer Sunday. Uh, And uh, blessings on the rest of your Sunday and on your week. We'll see you.